to the ultimate lecture of the day. I've been telling you about a number of tests that will, um, that will show differences in sizes of DNA, differences in sizes of RNA. If we have a difference in the size of DNA, that's probably an insertion or deletion. And the way we can find out exactly what the insertion or deletion is, is now to go back and, se and sequence the DNA. If there's been a change in the size of RNA, it could be a donor site mutation, it could be um, um, an acceptor site mutation. So if we've done tests and we know that the DNA is perfect, but something funky is happening to the RNA, it makes it bigger or smaller or not at all, then we would want to go back and sequence the DNA. The only reason we can sequence DNA is Frederick Sanger, and he just recently passed away. We still sequence DNA the Sanger method. So if you hear about the dioxy method, it's also the Sanger method. Everything happened, the Human Genome Project, everything we know about DNA is as a result of what he figured out. He was playing with that free 3' hydroxyl that Dr. May has been going on and on and on about. Free 3' hydroxyl, that's what DNA polymerase uses, that's what RNA polymerase uses. What he figured out was he can take DNA, he can separate DNA, he can make a radioactive probe against a region of the DNA, so, and then he'll add DNA polymerase. So if he only has one primer, he'll only synthesize one strand, right? He'll, have, he'll be synthesizing the complementary strand. If he provides a primer with a free 3' hydroxyl, we have the template DNA. And if he supplies all the DNTPs, deoxynucleotides, all of them, triphosphates, then he realized that if he added something called dideoxynucleotide, so we know the deoxynucleotide, we're missing that 2' hydroxyl. Do you all know what that means? It's the carbon on the sugar, the carbon on the sugar. So go up to the picture, picture here, and this is the ribose sugar, where we have a base. The base is attached to carbon 1. Carbon 2, that's the difference between RNA and DNA. Deoxy means that there's no hydroxyl group there. In RNA, we have a hydroxyl group at carbon number 2. The next carbon over is carbon number 3, and we can continue carbon number 4, and there's that carbon number 5 with a phosphate group on it. So we don't have a hydroxyl group, we just have a, a hydrogen on deoxy, DNTPs. But it's this free 3' hydroxyl that the DNA polymerase uses to synthesize DNA. If we have 90% DNTPs and 10% dideoxy NTPs, so we just have a hydrogen of that free 3' hydroxyl. So you have the template DNA, you have the, the, the radioactive uh, primer, DNA polymerase, bunch of DNTPs. Every once in a while, I'll, as that DNA polymerase is synthesizing DNA, it will incorporate a dideoxy NTP. What happens? Stop. Synthesis stops because you don't have that darn free 3' hydroxyl. What Sanger figured out is that if he added enough DNTPs, enough template DNA, enough primers, and then a little bit of dideoxy NTPs, he will have the synthesis of a whole bunch of DNA, a whole bunch of single-stranded DNA from that template, a whole bunch and a whole bunch of different sizes. 
So he's hoping that if he optimizes the conditions, he'll have D DNA polymerase synthesized DNA and stop at the fifth base pair, and then I'll have another representation at the sixth base pair. So the next one will be six base pairs long. He'll have another strand that's seven base pairs long, another that's eight base pairs long. So he's hoping that we has random shuffling, random incorporation of the di-dioxy NTP, and millions of reactions will have different strands at different lengths. Hopefully one base pair different from each other. And then how do you figure out those base pairs? Well, you separate all those fragments according to size. Because the primer is radioactive, we'll be able to see all the different sizes of strands. Now the catch is radio radioactivity on x-ray film is black. So what he figured was is he did the reaction four times. So he take we have a scheme here. He has um, he takes double-stranded DNA and he'll denature it. He adds the radioactive primer that we're synthesizing in the five prime to three prime direction, all of the DNTPs, and then he separates it into four pots. In the first pot, he puts di-dioxy TTP, the, the next one di-dioxy CTP, and so forth. So the different, if you're looking at this, just this small strand of DNA, we'll have DNA polymerase synthesizing the complementary strand, and the first time it adds a di-dioxy TTP, reaction will stop. And then we have representation of all three Ts that are in that complementary strand. So we have three different fragment sizes, lots of them. And then the next pot, we have um, the reaction stopping every time a di-dioxy CTP is added. Now it's not really organized yet, it's just a big soup. But then we have to put it on gel electrophoresis to separate these fragments by size. So the smaller fragments, that's at the beginning of the sequence. The bigger fragments is at the end. So that if anybody ever asks you to read a sequencing gel, you start at the bottom. I'm circling this nucleotide. What's that? T. Now what's the next one? And going up. Nice. Now, can you imagine doing that as a grad student? Look at this gel here. I'd like to say this is mine, but I've actually done it, but this is not mine. But this is the kind of stuff that you had to do. You'd have to have a ruler, and you'd sit down with a cup of coffee, and you'd ask your friend to mark down, and you'd go, T, C, G, and try to get all the sequence there, about 250 base pairs you could get per read. 250 base pairs at a time is exhausting, and you had to do the reaction four times and you had to do it with radioactivity. That's the, the sequencing in words, so that's what you use for, um, for your studies. So you expose that gel to x-ray film, and then you can read the gel, which is not too radioactive, or sorry, the, the, the film. Thank goodness, we now have computers, we now have lasers, we now have fluorescent dioxynucleotides. So you only have to have one reaction pot your di-dioxy ATP is yellow, your di-dioxy CTP is red, and so forth. So you can do all the reactions together. So you have a whole bunch of, you have the template DNA, you have the primer, and then you have the, the four DNTPs and all four di-dioxy NTPs, each with their own particular color. So you have all these uh, fluorescently labeled strands, single strands of DNA. And then we can make them in order by separating by size, and this is in a it's still in a gel, but it's now in a capillary tube sort of, sort of environment. And then we have our nice detector and our laser and our c computer. Look at that. You can do your, you get your sequence looking like this at the end of the day, computer printout. And the different colored peaks indicate the different base pairs. It's a lot easier to read out, and you don't need the help of your colleague.
and you don't have to pay for their coffee. Really nice. Um, so we get a lot of information from the Strand, and sometimes if you see this, these nice three red peaks in a row, sometimes we see little blips. Well, you know that we all have, if you isolate a patient's DNA and you separate it by size and you sequence their DNA, sometimes you can see two blips of the exact same size. What do you think that means? It's a person's either homozygous or heterozygous, right? So if you see a blip, that might mean that one allele has a base pair mutation, yeah? Uh-huh, so you can actually see mutations here. Not only heterozygous, but homozygous. Sequencing automated, that has the words. If you have DNA and you've seen an insertion or deletion or some sort of change, or even if you haven't seen that yet, and you sequence somebody's DNA and you realize that there's a base pair change. This one patient has a base pair change and somebody has already published an article saying that this base pair change gives rise to disease. It's the cause of disease. You take a look at the DNA and you realize that you've either created or destroyed a restriction site. I'm just letting you know that we have four base pairs, A, C, T, G. So the chances of having these signature sequences, these restriction sites in your DNA, there's a very good chance of a lot of your DNA having these restriction sites. So our DNA is encased in a nice nucle um, nucleus, and it's inside a nice healthy cell. The restriction endonucleases come from bacteria, from the cytosol of, of bacteria. So don't worry, your DNA won't fall apart. The only time genomic DNA sees a restriction endonuclease is in a test tube, okay? So don't worry about that. But all of our DNA has, if you have a stretch of 2,000 base pairs, there's typically about 300 restriction sites in 2,000 base pairs. So there's lots of these signature sequences, but it's up to us to look at the DNA and say, hey, that mutation just created a restriction site. Now I can use that restriction site and the beauty of PCR to identify everybody in that family that has that mutation that creates a restriction site. Because I can use restriction endonuclease plus one of our DNA techniques, put them together, and it's called RFLIP, Restriction Fragment Length Polymorphism. Now polymorphism indicates a change in DNA. Sometimes it's pathogenic, most of the times it's not, but when we're doing these tests for disease, you can assume it's pathogenic, that means it gives rise to disease. Restriction fragment length polymorphism. So typically, again, the polymorphism, sometimes you'll see the definition as a, a change in DNA that's tolerated in greater than 1% of the population. But right now, we're discussing polymorphisms as something that gives rise to disease, that base pair change. So the single base pair change often creates or destroys a restriction site. We can use this information. So once we sequence that gene, now we can design an RFLIP restriction fragment length polymorphism analysis to identify other members of the family. And if it's an autosomal recessive disease, you can identify a bunch of carriers, yeah? Really cool technique. Two ways to do this. So historically, if you, if you found the restriction site, the creation of a restriction site, you could do a southern blood analysis and use that particular restriction endonuclease to chop up the genomic DNA. Nowadays, we can do this R-flip with PCR. So historically, um, 
Southern blot analysis was ultimately for insertions or deletions. They realized that a point mutation could create or destroy a restriction site. So scientists, being smart people that they are, decided, hey, we can do a southern blot analysis picking the right restriction enzyme, and then we can see if the DNA, genomic DNA, is cut or not. Nowadays, we can do a PCR, we can amplify the region of DNA, and then we can take that DNA that we've amplified and do a restriction digest. Then we separate it on, on gel, and because um, we amplify a lot of DNA with PCR, we can actually see it without ethidium bromide. So you don't need um, a radioactive probe. So here's a case of a diagnosis of a patient suspected with sickle cell anemia. And it's RFLP. Back in the day, it would be used southern blot analysis. So we've sequenced the, the, the DNA, and we know that uh, sickle cell anemia is caused by a one base pair mutation. It changes an amino acid. We know that um, hemoglobin A, that's the normal hemoglobin, has a restriction site. I think that's at the sixth, sixth um, amino acid codon. It's a DDE1 restriction site. If somebody has sickle cell, if they have that one-point mutation that leads to sickle cell anemia, they have destroyed, that restriction site is destroyed. So we can utilize that in the lab by doing um, the southern blood analysis and probing for the particular region of DNA. So you take a person's DNA, um, you chop it up with DDE1, run it on a gel, then you transfer it onto a membrane, and then you hybridize it with a probe. Now, first I want you to notice where, what I'm circling here is the first DDE1 site, the second DDE1 site, and then the third. We know that a person with hemoglobin A, the enzyme is going to cut 175 base pair fragment and a 201 base pair fragment. Now we have to pick our probe. So we're going to have a probe sliding in in red. So this probe will hybridize to the region on the left, and it'll hybridize to the region on the right. So if somebody has hemoglobin A, you'll have two fragments. This probe will bind to both fragments because there's enough DNA overlap to hybridize to the two fragments. So we'll have a fragment of, you help me, 175 base pairs. You can help me with the other one, 201. Now I'm going to ask you to do some quick math without looking at the gel. Somebody who has the mutation of the middle DDE1 site, how big will that piece of DNA be? 276, or 376. Oh, my bad, no. 376. So this probe will either identify 376 base pairs, 175, or 201, depending on whether somebody has hemoglobin A or hemoglobin S. So we're going to digest the DNA, the double-stranded DNA. We have probably a, a control in a patient. It's with DDE1 restriction site. Then we do that southern blot analysis. We have the radioactive probe. In A, we see the two bands. Different sizes, 201 higher, 175 lower. And a person with sickle cell will have one band at 376. This is an autosomal recessive disorder, so if somebody has sickle cell, they're, homozo uh, they're homozygous mutant, yes? So this is how we can identify by southern blood analysis. RFLP analysis can also be used to detect the creation or destruction of a restriction site. Here's an example of something called maple syrup urine disease that you're going to be learning maybe next term when you're discussing amino acidopathies. That means difficulty metabolizing amino acids. You, typically, um, maple syrup urine disease, uh, the common mutation, so most people who have this disease have this one mutation, and that's a tyrosine 393 amino acid 
which is converted to N. So we've destroyed a restriction, specific restriction site. So um, it's called maple syrup urine disease because babies, mothers who change babies with maple syrup urine disease will come to the doctor and say, the diapers smell like maple syrup or sugary. So that's actually the way that these, these young children are identified initially because their urine smells like maple syrup. So you would do this, um, this test, this hour flip analysis. First you amplify 186 base pair fragment and then you digest with the restriction site, in this case, the restriction site, the restriction enzyme is called SCA1. So if somebody has a normal allele, they'll have this particular 186 base pair fragment, and after restriction digest, you'll have a 146 and a 40 base pair fragment. If somebody has a mutant allele where you've mutated out that restriction site, the restriction enzyme won't cut anything and will retain that 186 base pair fragment. So I have the molecular weight weights um, indicated to the left. So patient number one, if you were going to um, uh, analyze these results, what is patient number one? Normal. But is this person homozygous normal? Yeah. How about two? How about three? Homozygous is affected or homozygous mutant. There's a number of different ways to say that. So now I'm going to skip over to six and seven. Hetero, does that mean they're a carrier? Yes. So six and seven are carriers because they have a representation of the mutant allele, and the lower two bands represent the mutated allele. Now, it's exhaustive work doing this RFLP analysis, um, and sometimes um, well, hospitals all over the world have designed a quicker way to test for point mutations for common uh, common changes in the DNA. So it's the, the, the common mutation for CFTR, that's cystic fibrosis. The CFTR um, is the gene that's mutated, the receptor. Sickle cell is one base pair change. So as the technology improves, we try to improve our, our tests for the common mutations. So there's a lot of work that goes into this thing called allele-specific oligonucleotide test. It's also called dot blot, and I'll show you why in a minute. ASO, allele-specific oligonucleotide. So again, I have to repeat, it's for common mutations. So there's a lot of work going into it, so they just do this ASO for common mutations. The idea is, is you're looking for people who are homozygous normal, homozygous affected, and carriers. So if we're looking for two, either one normal allele or mutant allele, we have to create two probes. One probe that looks for the common, the normal allele, and another that looks for the mutant allele. In the case of CFTR, or sorry, sickle cell anemia, sorry, this is sickle cell disease, we can make a probe for the double-stranded DNA that will hybridize to all of the DNA, and it can actually tell the difference between, see the T, so the A is in the, in the genomic DNA, the T is in the probe. One base pair change, and that probe won't bind to the hemoglobin, the, the, other, the, the other hemoglobin. So in the, this case on the um, A, it's the hemoglobin S probe that's hybridized, but this probe for hemoglobin S does not bind to hemoglobin A, even though it's only one base pair change. So a lot of work goes into making these tests to make sure they're very stringent. So you do the test twice. You do the test once with the normal probe, and then you do the test another time with a mutant probe. For sickle cell anemia, there's only one mutation that gives rise to disease. So the answer is yes or no for sickle cell. I have a little animation. 
We have two tests, membrane that binds DNA well, one that's going to be the normal pro looking for the normal allele, and the other that's going to be looking for the mutant allele. So you take the DNA, you blot it onto the membrane. Then you add to the left, you're looking for the normal allele, and I'm calling that allele 1. We put the radioactive probe on the DNA. We put the mutant allele probe on the other side, allele 2, we're going to call that mutant. Then we wash away the non-binding probes, exposed to film. So if this is what we see, if the probe bound to the normal allele and not to the mutant allele, we can assume that person is homozygous normal, two normal alleles. If this is what we see, what's that? Homozygous affected or homozygous mutant? Yeah? Because the probe that was made for the normal allele didn't find any normal allele. The test was done, but it didn't find the normal allele. What about that? Heterozygous. So that person would be a carrier, and if we're testing for sickle cell anemia, that person's a carrier of sickle cell anemia. So you can use that analogy when you're looking at this page in Lippincott, where, um, well, okay, the dots are red, um, I guess because it's hemoglobin, look good red. So that's what we do. We isolate the DNA. Uh, we put blot it on two pieces of membrane. Um, in the top row, we use the probe against the normal allele, and at the bottom, we use the probe against the mutant allele. And then we can I, determine whether that person is homozygous normal, homozygous affected, or a carrier. You're not going to like this one at all. Okay. Now, sickle cell is a very specific disease. You can only have one mutation giving rise to sickle cell disease. But I'm going to be talking about CFTR, cystic fibrosis. In the Caucasian population, 1 in 25 carrier frequency of Caucasians that come from North Europe. So my people... Have, I'm Polish, 125, 1 out of 25 people are carrier of the Delta F508. You're eventually going to have to memorize that. I don't think you have to know it yet. Memorize anyways. Delta F508, that's the common mutation. So it's really easy for me to get a dot blot test because there's a dot blot test because there's such a high carrier frequency. But if somebody has cystic fibrosis, you know that they have cystic fibrosis because they've tested positive in all the tests, but they test negative for Delta 5, F508. You know that there's a mutation, and say you do sequencing and you find that mutation, and now you want to find out if auntie has that, is a carrier of that disease or your distant cousin is a carrier of that particular mutation. ASO is very expensive, so as an alternative, you can do something called allele-specific PCR. So the, the, the primer that you use, that you have to have two primers. You have to have an allele-specific primer, and you have to have a reverse primer. So the allele, and they're going to be pointing into each other to, to amplify some region of interest. Your allele-specific primer, the very last base pair, the three-prime base pair, is, is going to be specific for normal allele, and you're going to have another allele-specific primer with that base pair change. So the primers are identical except for that last base pair. And the idea is, is that if we don't have complementarity of the DNA, the free 3' hydroxyl will be stuck in the air, and it no longer fits in the active site of DNA polymerase. So allele-specific PCR, we do a PC, two PCR reactions, one using the allele-specific uh, allele primer for normal, and in the other reaction, we do the allele-specific for mutant. 
both have the same reverse primer, so you know exactly what the product size is going to be. So if there's a perfect match of the primer, it's complementary to the DNA with all the base pairs, we'll have a product, a PCR product. If the free 3' hydroxyl is not in the right place, that means we don't have complementary binding, there will be no PCR product. Because it's either a yes or a no reaction, we actually have to have internal controls. And this is the part you're not going to like, the internal controls. So we're going to be saying, giving somebody a diagnosis based on yes or no of a PCR product, but in order to find out if that reaction works, we're going to have a control primer. And the control primer works with the reverse primer. I'll show you an animation. Bless you. So when the primers match, we're going to um, separate our DNA. Primer A binds, DNA polymerase will synthesize a strand. And then we'll have the reverse primer synthesizing the complementary strand. So we have a DNA product. That means the allele-specific primer found its allele. If the primers don't match, we don't have complementarity. DNA polymerase won't synthesize that piece of DNA. So it's going to be a yes or no answer. And this is not in your handouts, but I can include the animation if you want on Sakai. So at the top, this is if a pr the allele-specific primer finds its, its allele, and it will amplify a region of DNA, so it's that smaller fragment there. The control primer should also work, so we should also have a PCR product from that control primer. And because we are designing these tests, we know exactly what the sizes we're expecting to see. Lower down, if we have an allele-specific primer that doesn't find its allele, there won't be an allele-specific product, but there should be a control product because the control product, there should not... We're going to design the control primer so that there's no mutation in that region, so that control primer will always find its target. So the control and the reverse work together as a team, and the allele-specific primer, if it finds its allele, it'll work with the reverse. Here's an example of a test that you would do, allele-specific PCR. Mom and dad have a family history of the same autosomal recessive disease, and they have a baby. They want to make sure that the baby, or they want to find out if that baby has that particular autosomal recessive disease or if the parents are carriers. So we isolate their DNA, and we're going to be doing two tests, one for each person, mom, dad, and baby, with the allele-specific primer looking for the normal allele, and then we're going to do the same, a second reaction with the same DNA but using the um, allele-specific primer for the mutation. And then we have the control primer. So at the bottom, I have the results of the reactions. So mom, dad, and baby were looking for the presence of the normal allele. Mom, dad, and baby to the right were looking for the presence of the mutated allele. So first we look at the control primer. The control primer is farther away than the allele-specific one, so the control is bigger, yeah? Do all of these reactions, all of these six reactions on the two different gels, do we have product? Did we have a product, a big product? Yes, it's there, I'm circling it, it's present. So now that we know that re the reactions work, look at the screen, look at the screen, it's going to fly. Stop looking at it now. We know all of this information is good, and now we're going to analyze the information. Does mom, dad, and baby have a normal allele? Yes. Now we look, so we know that everybody's at least, for an autosomal recessive disorder, they're at least phenotypically normal. Yes? 
Now we want to find out if they're carriers or they could be affected. So now we look at the allele 2. Does mom have a mutated allele? She has the control, the control, the reaction worked, but she doesn't have the diseased allele, right? It's not there. There was no product. So you can assume that she has no mutated allele. So what do we assume about mom? Homozygous normal. So we can actually, I, there's actually a nomenclature with plus slash plus. The left allele is normal and the right allele is normal. Dad, does dad have a mutated allele? Baby mutated allele. If you combine the two tests together from allele one and allele two, do they have a normal allele? Do they have a mutant allele? And heterozygous, so they're phenotypically normal, genotypically affected. And another way of saying that is with the nomenclature plus slash minus. So one normal allele, one mutated allele. Well, these are allele-specific reactions. So if this left, sorry, this right gel, this is looking for the results of the allele-specific reaction using the primer looking for the mutated allele. We know the reaction worked because we have the, the control, and then we covered it up. But now, does mom have any PCR product using the allele-specific primer for the mutation? So you have to assume she doesn't have that allele. She doesn't have the mutation. So we can infer that she only has two normal alleles. Or that's good, she has two normal alleles. Dad is a carrier, baby is a carrier. Genotypically carriers, phenotypically normal. Okay? You can add the two together. You can add the R RFLP with Western blot. Sorry, I, I changed gears a little bit there. RFLP is the restriction fragment lake polymorphism, and you combine it with Western to see if it affects the protein. So we've done a PCR product, and for a normal person, it has a restriction site in it. So this is a mutation that destroys a restriction site. Control, we, have, we amplify a piece of DNA that's 333 base pairs. We cut it with, I think it's a VESPA-1 restriction site, restriction enzyme. Patient 1 and patient 2 happen to be brothers, and they have a mutation that destroys this restriction site. So it doesn't get digested, and we actually found out if this point mutation affects protein, and we have a reduction in protein as visualized on the Western blot. So this mutation affects the, the, the protein. It, it actually, this point mutation, um, makes this protein very unstable, so you can't really see it on Western blot. We can also compare sequencing RFLP and Western blot analysis. We knew this person had a disease. We figured it was that we knew the gene that it, that it was in. So we did the sequencing and we realized the mutation gave rise to a, a point mutation that created a restriction site. Mom and dad, we found that they were heterozygous because we have those two blips on the gel. The two blips are, are on this, they call it, call it a chromatograph. We did the um, PCR, we amplified the product. We identified that for control, we only have, we have one restriction site naturally occurring, and the, the patients have the creation of a new restriction site. So we can do that by um, RFLP. Mom and dad have one normal allele and one mutated allele. And we can also figure out if it affects protein by doing a Western. And this is a little bit step-by-step. Step. We amplified 
1,080 base pair fragment. It already contained a restriction site, or VESPA-1 restriction site. So a normal person already has that. Sometimes that's just in the design of the experiment. It works best. Sometimes it includes a restriction site. But we know that a person with the mutation, there's a, a new VESPA-1 restriction site, and we can see that after we separate the DNA on the gel. So this is a familial mutation. So now that we know this mutation, it's not common enough to do ASO, but it's very easy to do this RFLP. Now we're going to be finishing off with a dot blot, and we're going to do a few what-ifs. Cystic, fibr uh, cy yeah, cystic fibrosis. I mentioned that there's a common mutation. So let's say the common mutation is at base pair 256. But the second most common mutation in people from Northern Europe, because they were testing me and my family, is at base pair 898. And I want to have a baby, and I have cystic fibrosis in my family. My husband has cystic fibrosis in his family. So we want to see if we have the two common mutations, any, either of the two common mutations. So I'm looking for um, the mutation at 246 base pairs, and we do a dot plot. At the top is the normal allele, and the second is the mutated allele. I do it for me and my husband, and I can do it for my potential baby. So mutation number one, does dad have the normal allele at that base pair? Dad has the normal allele at that base pair. Do I have the normal allele at that base pair? Yes. Do I have the mutated allele? Yes. So I'm a carrier of that. And then we do the second test. We're looking for the mutation at 898. Does my husband have a normal allele at 898? Do I have a normal allele at mutation 8? Can you guys see? Sorry, you can't see. Does my husband have a mutation at that 898? Yes. Do I? So that means we're both carriers of a mutation that's in the SCFTR gene. Both have no, are known to be pathogenic. Both of us are carriers, so we're phenotypically normal. Does anybody know what will happen if my baby has the mutation 246 and the mutation at 898? Compound heterozygote. So we know that I'm a carrier of one, my husband's a carrier of the other. So if we look at our baby, one normal allele, one normal allele from dad, what are the chances of getting the two normal alleles? Punnett square. 25% chance of that baby being normal for all of those alleles, the alleles at the two spaces, two places. Homozygous normal. What are the chances of the baby having mutation one? 25%. Now, because the baby doesn't have the mutation at 898, he'll still have a normal allele using that probe. He's still normal. He's still normal there. He's a carrier of my mutation. 25% chance of having being a carrier of dad's mutation. What's that? Compound heterozygote. So that child is affected. 25% chance of being compound heterozygote and being, being affected. If you want to interpret the Sanger sequencing, I showed you how you read it, and I actually gave you an example. And here I have a normal control, patient 2 and patient 3. So I've highlighted 325. So in a normal person, what's the base pair at 325? C. 
So if you look at the sequencing from bottom to top, I've already typed it out so you know what the sequence is. And so the person's home is that we don't separate the alleles when we sequence DNA, so we can assume that person is plus slash plus. Patient number two looking at 325. What's the base pair? A. So we can assume because we only see one band at 325 in the wrong place, that's a homozygous mutant. Patient number three, look at 325. One allele has an A, the other allele has a C. So we could say that's plus slash minus, so that would be a carrier if this is a mutation that gives rise to an autosomal recessive disorder. So which test when? We're not going to trick you and, and not give, give you misinformation. Read the stem. If, I, if in the stem of the question it says make or break a restriction site, what test? RFLP, we're using that restriction site, we're optimizing that restriction site using restriction endonuclease. If I said it was a very common mutation that affects a large percent of a particular population and it's allele-specific, ASO. If I asked you if, oh, let me see, what else? Do, 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 do. What about if I said this person had a disease but I've done all the tests for all the common mutations, but I'm pretty sure I know it's a hemoglobinopathy, hemoglobin A. What do I do? Yeah, does everybody get that? If I've tried all the regular known mutations, they all come back negative, but I know that person has got a hemoglobinopathy, or I know that person has cystic fibrosis. The only way we can determine what that person has is by sequencing. Sequencing. Hmm? You have to sequence. You have to hope to get the target gene. And if you went, I have a visiting professor here. She's uh, the director of genome research or, or clinical genomic studies at the Hospital for Sick Children. She's now doing next generation sequencing, so she can just sequence everything. But unless you have thousands of dollars, we typically only sequence one gene at a time, and it's typically a candidate gene. So if somebody has, has, fails a sweat chloride test, it's probably cystic fibrosis, yeah? What about if I have a forensic sample and I want to do a test to do G DNA fingerprinting? What's the first thing I have to do? Does everybody think PCR? I have to amplify that little forensic sample of DNA before I do anything, okay? So I, you're gonna be getting hints in the stem that, and that will lead you to what the answer is. Oh, Jesus. All right, I'm sorry. I... Okay, so if we look at, everybody click anyways. I don't know. <laughs> I'm going to have to, I think you can reset this, right? I can reopen it somehow by magic. The green arrow, the green arrow. Okay. 100% attendance. You know, sometimes you get 100%. By the way, I'm Catholic. I didn't mean to offend anybody. My name is Mary. Okay. Okay, five, commit, four, 
then it would be effective. But if we're just talking about the promoter, RNA polymerase recognizes the promoter. If there's a mutation in the promoter, it might not make RNA at all. This is the kind of question you might see on a test. You'll see the results of the southern blood analysis, the northern blood analysis, and the western blood analysis. To the left, we have control. To the right, we have a patient. What type of mutation is here? Does it look like a deletion to you? A deletion affecting the DNA, then the RNA, then the protein. Okay. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to be supplying and writing. Uh, like on Sakai, I'll post this. What type of mutation is shown here? Southern blot, northern blot, western blot. Is the DNA okay? Northern blood, is the RNA okay? Now, think about the RNA. Is it bigger or smaller? Smaller. So it's probably um, acceptor site? It, no, it's not necessarily deletion, because if it's a big deletion, we'll see it in the southern blood. But if RNA is smaller or bigger than what the control is, it's either a donor site or acceptor site. So which one would make it smaller? Probably acceptor, because if, say, the first acceptor is gone, the RNA polymerase will wait to see the next appropriate acceptor site, making the total RNA smaller. And then as a result, the protein is smaller. Aha! Is the DNA just structurally okay? What about the northern, or the RNA? Larger, do we see any protein? No. So what kind of mutation do you think this is? If you're thinking about RNA as it's being made, it looks for a donor, but if it doesn't find a donor, it'll go for the next appropriate donor. So the RNA will be longer. A lot of times when you mess up these, uh, these splice sites, you actually incorporate a new stop codon. Sometimes this new stop codon not only would it affect the protein, but there's also something called, and this is more than you need to know, nonsense-mediated decay. And then the RNA just gets disappeared, and then you have no protein. Or else the protein could have all the wrong amino acids, unstable, and get taken out by the cell's proteasome. I think this is the last one. Not sure, so don't run away. Look at this. What's going on? Now, we controlled for patient DNA, we controlled for control DNA, and we've added the same amount of DNA for both patient and control. What do we see? Is there a difference in the genomic DNA? Does it look the same? We've already controlled for concentration. It looks the same size. Is there the same amount? And is there less RNA? But it's the right size, yeah? Is there less protein? But there's just half of it? My friend, what do we call this? What do we call this? Yeah, I'm looking at you. What do we call this? What do we call this? What do, okay, the question is, 
We have half as much DNA, which leads to half as much RNA, which leads to half as much protein. got me on this yesterday. You got me on this yesterday, so I got you back. Haplo insufficiency. <laughs> the gene is not there. Haplo insufficiency. I hope you don't mind me playing along. I hope you don't mind. Haplo insufficiency. It's just the gene is just not there. Like the LDL receptor. I made that just for you. <laughs> 